Hi, I'm Pastor Jeremy, and welcome to the preaching ministry of Nest Baptist, where we seek to equip people to love God and love others. So whether you are a longtime follower of Jesus, or you're exploring what faith in Him might look like, we're glad you're here. It is our prayer that through our sermons, you might better understand who God is, what He has done for you, and what that means for your life. May all of this lead to the worship of God and be for His glory. Good morning, friends. Happy New Year. The letter to the Ephesians is a love story about the church, the bride of Christ. Okay, chapter 1, verses 1 to 10. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Christ Jesus, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us, in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ, as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. May the Lord bless your message. Well, thank you, Janie. I'm going to plug that before it drives us all crazy. So here we go on to a new book, and it's always so excited to dig into a new book of the Bible. And uh, with the book of Ephesians we have before us, that is probably one of the most well-known of the New Testament epistles. Uh, a letter written to the church of Ephesus, which was created to be you know, circulated around through all of the churches, actually. And in this letter, what we will find is applicable, church, uh, applicable truths for churches that stand the test of time. Churches that were dealing with the very same issues that our church deals with and truths that we need to hear again and again. One of the interesting things you'll notice about this book, if you read through it all the way to the end, uh, you can read through it in one sitting fair, uh, fairly quickly, uh, is that the first half deals primarily with theology and an understanding of the gospel, uh, the teaching that the church, what it meant to be the church, as Janie mentioned. And then the second half of the book really focuses on what it looks like to live those truths out. So it gives the truths, and what does it look to, to live those truths out? Another way to say that is chapter 1 to 3, it really deals with our position, who we are in Christ. And then chapters 4 to 6, it deals with our practice of that. How are we to live in Christ now that we've understand or understood these truths? And that's so important to see them balanced that way. Because you can't just get right into the imperatives until you lay this foundation, first of all, of the gospel, the foundation of true doctrine. Once you get that, once that really sinks in and, and you get it and it sinks down, then you can go out in freedom and you can live it out fully. And so that's what we want to do. We want to fully understand our position. Or maybe if you don't have that position in Christ yet, then we want to make sure that you get into that position. You understand what it means to get into that position. 
And then when we get to chapter 4 and beyond, then we're going to focus on our practice of living out Christ. But of course, each week we are going to look at the practical outworking of each truth. You're not going to have to wait until chapter 4 for that to happen. We always want to see the application of each passage that we study as we go through this. And so this passage that's before us today, other than the introduction, is one long sentence. It is expertly crafted. All the way from verse 3 to verse 14, which we didn't even get to yet, what we see is arguably the finest sentence that has ever been written in the history of the world. How's that for a claim? That's not hyperbole, and many would agree with me. I hope you will too, and it's actually going to take us two weeks in order just to get through this one long sentence. In the Greek, this is a 202-word sentence that is complex, it is glorious, and it oozes with God-centered worship. Our translations have divided it into multiple sentences so we don't see it, but it's an incredible work of literature. And it contains one of the most beautiful truths in all of Scripture. The fact that we have been blessed in Jesus Christ with every spiritual blessing that is available in the heavenly realms. I mean, how do you like that for a promise? We have been blessed with every spiritual blessing that is available in the heavenly realms through Jesus Christ. And I really think we got to dig into that promise this morning. And so in order to do that, what we're going to do is we're going to look at, number one, how do you get this blessing? Second, what is the blessing? Number three, why we can get this blessing? And then number four, what do I do with the blessing? So let's start there at the beginning. What is this blessing? How do I get this? Let's start with this amazing truth right off the hop. It's something that as a believer, you already have. You don't have to earn it. You can't buy it. You just get it. You have it. Verse 3 says, He has blessed you with every spiritual blessing. Now, this word blessing has different connotations to how we may typically use it. We often use it as a way to wish someone well, to bless them. But the New Testament uses it in the same way, really, that the Old Testament uses the word shalom. So this blessing, this shalom, could be defined this way, that the promise that every joy, every benefit that your heart and your life long for and need has been met. This is what it means to be blessed. The promise that every joy, every benefit that your heart and your life that they long for and need has been met. That's our working definition, and that's the beautiful truth right here. You may want to write that one down and really come to meditate upon it. Put that in your heart, because this is what Paul is telling us. That's what Scripture is assuring us of. Now, the answer to this question is found in the passage itself of how we are to get this. And we might think that the way of blessing is through the things that we do. So if we act right, if we treat others right, if we do the right things, then all those things can bring us like these good vibes. Because, I mean, let's be honest, natural consequences are a real thing. So, of course, if we do good to others and if we do good things, some of that's going to come back to us. Of course, that's good natural consequences. Do good to others, they'll probably good, do good to you etc. But that's not all that's really being talked about here. We're talking about a deep longing in your life 
that you've always known was there being met. The deepest longing in your life and in your heart, you've always known it to be there and it has been met. And this passage tells us three times that it is something that we only have in Christ. In verse 4, it says, in Him. In verse 6, it says, in the Beloved. In verse 7, it says, in Him. And it says this on and on throughout this passage. It is through our being united with Christ in His death and in His resurrection that we have every spiritual blessing. Jesus is literally at the right hand of the Father right now, and we are there representatively as members of His body. That is what being in Him begins to open us up to its meaning. To become a Christian, then, is not simply just something where we get Jesus as our King to obey primarily, or primarily as an example to follow, though He is those things. It goes much beyond that. And I think that we could look at it, there's two things that you get in Christ. And the first one is that you become legally united to Christ. It's kind of like when you get married and you have nothing. And you bring nothing into the marriage. But as soon as you are married, all that your spouse has, now you have. Legally. You have it. And this is for better or for worse, right? When Tanya and I got married, her student loan, that became my student loan. I inherited it. And I had a motorcycle. These are things we both brought into the marriage. Needless to say, the motorcycle didn't last too long once we both owned it. And I know, it's just because she cares about me that much. And I also know that I got the better end of the deal, so that's all good. These are things that when you enter into this, what we have in our country is a legal contract, you both are legal owners. You have all of what the other person has. And in Romans 6, it says that we are united in his death. His death meant something. It accomplished something. And we are united in it legally. That means that his freedom is fully yours. Not only his death, but also his resurrection. All the medals, all of the accolades that he won are pinned to your chest. You came into the relationship, you might say, as a private, to borrow from the Canadian military. And you are instantly awarded all of the accolades and the positions of the general, the highest ranking. All of it has become yours. So this is the legal standing that you now have. Once unable to stand before God, to now having all the rights and the privileges of Jesus' own position before God. We have that in Christ. Legally. But not, also, not only legally, but also vitally. You see, it's now a vital part of who you are. Organically, the Holy Spirit comes into your life when you believe. It becomes a part of who you are, your very life. The Holy Spirit comes in, and now you have an advocate. This is how you get every spiritual blessing. You believe, and you are given your possession, position legally and vitally, organically, practically, it is yours. And so then becoming a Christian is not a process. It's not something that you try to do. It's something that you could say you either are or you aren't. It's something that certainly you learn in and you grow in through time, but there is a point when it happens. When you're convicted of your sin and your inability to do anything about it before God and you repent of it 
and you trust in Jesus. You know, sometimes that point when it happens is more clear and it is more dramatic than others, but it is always there. The point where you surrender, you repent, and you believe. It is in Him that we have this wonderful privilege, this new life. You were once this way, and now you are this way. You were once apart from Him, but now you are in Him. Now think about it. Because this means everything. This changes absolutely everything about who you are. I mean, think about Paul. Paul persecuted Christians for a good chunk of his life, as you are probably well aware of. He beat them. He threw them into prison. He sentenced many of them to death. Many of those people that he had killed or that he had beaten or imprisoned, they had relatives that would have been in his churches. They knew him. He knew them. He knew their families. They all knew where he came from and what he had done. Have you ever thought about that? Because here he is, so this guy that had done that, he's making this claim that we are holy and blameless before God because we are in Christ. That's a radical thing to claim before a group of people who knew you in that context. And in Romans 8, he says, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And he includes himself when he says that. There is no condemnation anymore. And that's a bold statement to make. And he made it to people that knew firsthand what his past was like. But it's true. You see, no matter your past, no matter what you've done, when true repentance and confession happens before God, you become holy and blameless. And if Paul can stand holy and blameless before God with zero condemnations, then so too can you. And you don't earn that. It's a privilege that you have been given in Jesus Christ when you believe. So then, more specifically than what is this blessing? Now, there's a lot of privileges that we have in this sentence, but it's not an exhaustive list. And as you read through this long sentence, you will see many blessings that are listed there. And I count at least about five of them. There's the blessing of holiness that we've been given. There's adoption. There's redemption, there's forgiveness, there's the Holy Spirit, and there's the hope of glory. Now, as you read through it, you'll see all of those things that are listed as, as these blessings that we are able to receive, that we have received. There's a lot, but let me just look at a, two of them. Adoption. Think about adoption for a moment. That's in verse 5. You'll see that this is the blessing that we have received. That means that Jesus is not just our King, That means that He is your Father. God is our Father. This means that, number one, you have access to God. Because you have been adopted in Christ, you have access to God. Access that you did not have before. Direct access. You know, there's many things that my kids ask of me that you guys can't ask of me. I mean, you could ask them, but there's no guarantee that I would oblige you. You just don't have the same access to me that they do. But they know that they can ask me. And it doesn't mean that it's always going to be a yes. Like, I'm not always going to say yes to things that are detrimental. As your kids are growing, you know that this is the case. But I will always listen, and I will always give them what is best. And we have this privilege with God. We have the same position with Him. We've been granted adoption as sons, is what the passage says. And that's not a sexist comment. It's the opposite of that. You see, we talked about primogeniture in the book of Samuel, that it was only the firstborn son who could inherit the land, who could inherit the wealth. That's the way in which their culture operated. 
But then the Bible took that and it just blew it apart. Because it is in Christ that we are all given this inheritance. We are all given this inheritance from God. Man, woman, and child. We are all co-heirs together. And this is the meaning of adoption. We have access to God and we have this glorious inheritance. It also means security. You know, if you're an employee, how long does your boss put up with you before he fires you? Could be a long time, could be not very long at all. Depends on your boss and it depends on your relationship with them. You never really know. But with a parent, it's a different scenario. You will never not be their child. No matter what you do, that position is always there. You have ultimate security in that relationship if you are truly the child. So adoption means at least these things. Access, inheritance, and security. But the blessing is not only adoption that we receive, it's also redemption. That's the second thing of this list of about five that I would mention this morning. And we see this in verse 7. Now, redemption is a loaded word. It doesn't just mean paying a debt. And it's not just that your debt is no longer there, but rather it means that you've been released from the bonds that your debt had you under. You were in bondage in a very real sense. You were released from slavery is what the case really was. The word is really ransom. A ransom has been paid for your freedom. Now, a number of years ago, I was doing some hospital visitation at HSC. And I parked on the street, and I thought I had it figured out. Sometimes the signs can be confusing, and they have various times and, and things written on the sign. And it looked like it was two-hour parking, so I thought I was okay to park there, filled the meter. But came out, and my car, lo and behold, had been towed. And I looked fine print on the sign. You could only park there till 3.30, or, you know, it had whatever it was, 1530? Is that what it, is? it would be the equivalent of it, right? So I wasn't thinking that when I parked there. I come out, vehicles towed. I was outraged. I mean, did they know what I was doing there? I was providing spiritual care. And I had to walk home. And it was hot outside. I wasn't very happy. So I had to go to the parking compound on the other side of the city. And do you know what they call those places? They are sometimes referred to as redemption centers. So, you pay your $200 or whatever it is, and they stamp your receipt, and the receipt doesn't necessarily say paid. You know what it says? It says redeemed. You have redeemed your car. Because your car was being held captive. It was held for a ransom, literally. It owed a debt and could not pay the debt. And that's what this word means. This is a word picture. Not just to have a debt paid, but to be released from bondage. And this is what we have in Jesus Christ. There was a debt that we were under that we could not pay. A ransom had to be paid for your freedom. We have been given adoption and we have been redeemed. And what a blessing this is. Well, then that begs the question of why is it that we are able to receive this? Now, verse 7 tells us that we have redemption through His blood. And it is because of the blood that He shed that we become free. When we see Him loving and serving and dying for me, it frees me. Verse 7 says that it is the forgiveness of your sin. And when you see what your sin cost Him, and that He shed His blood for you, 
It becomes something glorious. And the shedding of his blood was the method. It's what had to happen. But there's even more behind it. Because like Dwight mentioned last week, it was the separation from the Father that was the deepest. It was, it was beyond the physical pain of what Jesus did on our behalf. The physical pain was just the tip of the iceberg. There was so much more underneath it. Philippians 2, it tells us that he left it all. He gave up everything and he stood between God's wrath and you. And he was innocent. He was the only truly innocent sufferer that this world has known. And he took your guilt and he bore the wrath of it before his father. That's how you have received this blessing. His blood did it. You know, we're also told further up this passage that we were predestined for it. That he chose us for it before the foundation of the world. Now, these words scare a lot of people. In fact, they even turn some people off and they cause many to try to come up with ways to get around them or to come up with ways to explain them away, but there's really no need to. These are Bible words, and these words should inspire awe and worship, and that's why Paul lists them here as things that give us praise. The idea of God choosing a people to display His glory, that's not a new thing. The Bible is a book of election. God chose Abraham to bring blessing to the nations, according to Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 to 3. God chose the nation of Israel that they might be a light to the nations. That's Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 6 to 8, and Isaiah chapter 42, verses 6 to 8. Further, Jesus chose his 12 disciples to bear fruit and to multiply. Paul adds that God chose what is insignificant and despised in the world so that no one can boast in his presence. That's 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 28 to 29. And that's you and me. The insignificant and the despised in the world God chose so that no one can boast in his presence. You see, this brings a great deal of humility into the equation. In Ephesians, as in other New Testament texts like Romans 9 to 11, Acts 13, 48, Titus 1, 1, 1 Peter 1, 1, 2 Peter 1, 10, we read that God chose individuals for salvation. These believers, both Jew and Gentile, they make up the church. I like the way the Baptist faith and message puts it. They say this. It says, election is the gracious purpose of God, according to which he regenerates, he justifies, he sanctifies, and glorifies sinners. It is consistent with free agency of people, and it comprehends all the means in connection with the end. It is the glorious display of God's sovereign goodness and is infinitely wise, holy, and unchangeable. It excludes boasting and it promotes humility. You know, there's, there's a lot that can be said on this topic, but for the message that Paul is giving us, we see that God's loving actions that have made it possible for you to be adopted into His family. It is His grace. It is His mercy. It is His sacrifice that has accomplished this on your behalf. And it says it's before time began. That means if it happened before time began, there's nothing that you did to earn it. It came to you before you were. And all of this took place before the foundation of the world. He already knew you. 
He already loved you. He already had a place for you. We may look at that and say, well, if that's true, then what is the need for evangelism? Well, election does not lessen the need to tell people about Jesus. Election actually gives hope to evangelism. And Jesus himself said this. When Paul was discouraged in Corinth, we are told in Acts chapter 18 that Jesus appeared to him and he said to him, he said, don't be afraid, but keep on speaking and don't be silent because I have many people in this city. So this is a city that nobody had been to yet. No one had shared the gospel in yet. And Jesus says to Paul, I have many people who are in this city. Some people will believe when you speak the gospel. That is the glorious truth of God's sovereignty. They were chosen through Christ before the foundation of the world. What Paul had to do then was to be faithful, and he had to go, and he had to share the gospel with them. If this were not true, then evangelism would only be about the quality of your presentation. Are you smart enough to convince someone of Jesus? It would be all about your intellect. But fortunately for us, it's not solely dependent upon your ability, though that is a key factor and something that we need to continually be improving upon. But ultimately, it is about the power of God and the working of the Holy Spirit. Only God can change a heart. And as Dr. Kent Hughes puts it, he says, we must never allow our subjective experience of choosing Christ to water down the fact that we would not have chosen Him, chosen him if He had not first chose us. That's John 6, 44. Well, here's a bunch of scripture passages that say that. John 6, 44, John 15, 16, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 4 to 7, 2 Thessalonians 2, 13, and 1 Peter 1, 2. So if you're listening to this online, go to, you could write down those ones and take a look at them. They all say the same thing. The doctrine of election presents us with a God who defies finite analysis. It is a doctrine that lets God be God. And Paul says here that it is something that we should be praising God for. It is a blessing that we have received. So that's why we can get this blessing. Paul says in this passage we can get it because of election and through His blood. And then that begs the final question. And this is kind of the practical outcome of it for us is, what do you do with it when you get it? Paul says in verse 6 that all of this is to the praise of His glorious grace. Now this phrase comes up three times in his book. In the book of Ephesians, the praise of His glorious grace. This is not something that you just believe in your head, but it must become glorious to you. You give it praise in words, in song, and in devotion. We were born to bring praise. There's no more beautiful and captivating narrative than someone giving their life for someone else. Multitudes of stories and books and movies revolve around this concept for a good reason. When you see someone sacrificing themselves for another or for a group, it becomes a story that our hearts join in with and elevates. So when you see Jesus and when you see what He has done for you, you simply can't help but praise Him. It becomes the natural outpouring of our lives, the praise in Jesus Christ. And this has to be the point of every sermon. This is where we always want to get to. This is the reason why we gather every week for what we call a worship service. Because we were meant to give praise, and this is one of the ways in which we regularly do that. That's why we call it a worship service. 
And this is also how I judge every sermon. You know, every sermon I preach or every sermon someone else preaches, does it result in praise as a result of the gospel? You know, praise that is so deep that it motivates us to real change in our lives. Or does it result in guilt, in condemnation, and more striving, more work? You see, there's a point in every sermon where a turn happens, I would say. A sermon begins with exegeting the passage, getting an understanding of what's going on, looking at what the problem is, whether that's something we should be doing or whether that's something that we shouldn't be doing. That becomes obvious in the passage. Every time we go through the Bible, we're learning good things and it's helping us. But then we have to see how it points to Jesus and how His grace and how His mercy has saved us and how He lived the perfect life that we cannot live. That's when this little talk that I am doing here moves from being a lecture to being a sermon. You see, many sermons are little more than lectures. There is no sermon, though, without the gospel. And it is the gospel that leads to application. And this is all of what this passage is about. It's about praise and glory. You know, it happened at a particular point in Dwight's sermon last week. He was given a good message, and I was taking notes, and then he started telling us that we can't get to what Philippians 2 is talking about on our own striving. That Jesus has done it on our behalf, and it is only through Him that we can truly be humble. I was taking a few notes until that point, but that's when I put my pen down, and my heart was filled with praise. You know, not because it meant that I don't have to do anything, that Jesus did everything, so I don't have to do anything, but now it becomes my pleasure to do everything because of what He has done for me. You know, that was the moment when a talk moved from being a lecture to being a sermon. That's when we move out of the classroom and into the worship service. That's when it moves from the head and into the heart. And it is only through heart change that we see Jesus. It's that moment when David no longer becomes the kid who can slay the giant because he trusted in God with enough faith. To the point where it's seeing David as the representative who won a battle that the people couldn't win on their own without him. His victory became their victory. That's when it becomes a sermon. And that's when our hearts give praise and true change happens. And we never want to settle for less. We always want to see Jesus. We always have to see the gospel. It's woven into every passage, every verse of the Bible. Never settle for less. A sermon should always lead you to worship because you were made for praise. You were made for it. The ability that you and I have for real change is only through God at work through us when we have seen and understood the gospel of something that we have graciously been given. This passage is all about praise, and it is the outcome of being blessed with every spiritual blessing. When we see that, how could we not praise Him? We were born to praise. We do it all the time. Did, I don't know how many of you watched the World Junior Games. Actually, the last two when they played USA and then the gold medal match. I've never seen such loud praise in Canada. And they were expressing something that comes natural. We want to give praise. We want to cheer. We want to be able to do these things. And it's good. It's a natural outpouring of our lives because this is what we were meant for. We praise our favorite stores. We praise the new TV series that we are loving. We tell everyone we know that they should watch it. How many people have I told to watch Itchy Boots over the last month? Ask Jan or Krista. 
Won't you stop talking about this? We praise our favorite coffee or our favorite restaurant, so many things. When we find something we like, we want to tell people about it. We want them to join in on it. We give it praise. But we were ultimately created to give praise to God. You know, God has revealed Himself in His Word and worship. It is a response to that revelation. We are not to worship the God of our imaginations, but the God of the Bible. And this passage gives us so many reasons to do so. In Ephesus, the people had so many objects of worship. From Diana, who they built a temple to, to the emperor. There were places to praise. There was ways to give praise and worship. Just as our response of reading said today, what was idolatry? It fit in perfectly with this. So Paul begins this passage with a note of praise in verse 3, and he ends it in verse 14 with praise. Why would we bless God? Why would we praise God? Because He has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavens. You know, when Paul wrote this, his body was in prison, but his heart was in heaven. He saw that glorious truth of being blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, and he was able to look beyond his present circumstance and see his true position with Christ at the right hand of the Father. So too can you. Christ is in the heavenly realms, and so too are you. He is there literally, and we are representatively as members of His body. So let's live lives of praise. We praise so many things, but first and foremost, let's allow our lives to give praise to God for the greatness of our salvation. Because we remember that every joy, every benefit that your heart and life long for and need has been met. Oh, how elevated our position has become. From prisoners under bondage to redemption to the highest heavens where our deepest longings and needs are met in Him. We have been chosen before time began because of His great love and His good purpose. All because of Jesus. He is everything. As a result, let's go into this weekend with all of our faculties, with our mind and our body and our strength, and let's live lives of praise in every place that our feet will take us. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for the great blessing of this passage. And even as we read it, Lord, we are struck, and it is, it is difficult for us to comprehend all that we have in Jesus Christ, to be blessed with every spiritual blessing, every need, every desire in our life being met in Him. We thank you for this glorious truth. We see glimpses of it now, but there is this, there is this thought of the here and not yet in this passage. For we have this, and we understand it to an extent, but one day it'll be opened up to us perfectly. And we look forward to the full realization of this blessing, Father. Thank you that we can see it and know it and experience it here and now. And we look forward to the time when we will know it fully. Every blessing, every need that we have in our life being met in Jesus Christ. And Lord, as a result, may our lives go from here and give praise to you. Wherever we go and whatever conversation that we have, in each situation that presents itself before us, that we would bring praise and glory to your name, that we would bless your name because of all we have in Jesus Christ. It's in His name we pray. Amen.